invite you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1. And as we're doing that, weren't they terrific? Yeah. I also just want to mention that we have purchased a number of what are called the Gospel According to John journals. I have one right here, and it's, uh, it's the text of the Gospel of John in the translation that we use, the ESV. And on the left side, you have the text, and on the right side, you have lines. So it's meant to be used to, you know, read through the book of John with us and all maybe bring it in here and take notes, anything that you think is worth writing down from the sermons. And it keeps it all in one place. These are on sale in the cafe for about exactly what they cost us, $5. So I got one. It was given to me, I have to say. But Gabe Garcia was so jealous, I ended up buying one for him. So I actually did buy one. Now, these are great. I, they, uh, Crossway puts them out for every, uh, most of the books of the Bible. So if you are doing your own Bible study, uh, you can learn from them, or you can obviously buy the book of John from us. Hopefully it'll help you keep your thoughts and whatever God may be teaching you as we study the book of John, put it all in one place. Well, we've been talking about the fact that John, the author, makes use of witnesses in order to demonstrate to those who are reading his gospel that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God. Jesus is the only way to have your sins taken care of. The purpose of the whole gospel was that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing have life in his name. He was writing, remember, during a time when there were a number of second and third generation Christ followers who were thinking that perhaps it was better to go back to the synagogue, back to their kind of ethnic roots, rather than continue to worship Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so John is writing his gospel long after the other three gospels were already around. He includes uh, a lot of new material, but he focuses in on this one thing, who Jesus is. And he does so by using a number of different witnesses. It's almost like we're in a courtroom and he is calling people to sit on the, on the stand and he is asking them, what did you see in Jesus? What did you come to believe? And the very first and maybe most prominent witness is a man named John the Baptist. And we pick up in verse 15, the first of three episodes that we're gonna study tonight. And if you were really careful, carefully listening last weekend, you realize that I skipped verse 15. So all of those of you who emailed me and said, you skipped verse 15, way to go. But we're gonna come back and we'll get it, okay? There's three episodes here. The first one, verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So this is the first thing that John the author has John the Baptist kind of testifying to. And what is it? Well, it's the primacy the superiority of Jesus Christ. Now what we have here is that John was, John the Baptist was very well thought of. And by the time John the author writes this, of course, John the Baptist is dead. But because he was martyred, he has this, he has this great legacy. And so John the, the author 
wants his readers to hear from John the Baptist the things that most impacted him as he watched Jesus, as he listened to Jesus, as he, as we'll see, baptized Jesus. And the first thing we see, John bore witness and cried out, this was him of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, in the time that John was living, John the Baptist, there was a time in, in Jewish culture when if you were older, you got more respect. If you were the first in a job or the first in a family, you got more respect, or as some of us call it, the good old days. Remember those days when uh, age meant something, when being the first one on the job or whatever meant something? And so it meant something back there, and so John is very careful to say, you know what, it's not me, it's about Jesus, but notice how he says it. This is him whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Well, we look at the record and we say, you know what, wait a minute, John was actually older than Jesus, right? He actually was born first. And further, John came into the the public arena in ministry before Jesus did. So people were saying, wait a minute, John, you were here first, then Jesus. You're older than he is. So how come you are now saying that the respect should go to him? We already have seen in verses 6 through 8 that John the author has already said John the Baptist is the witness, he's not the light. Yet given kind of what was true in that culture, there were a lot of people who were wondering, John, are you the guy? And And John says, Jesus is of a higher rank than I am. For in reality, he was before me. He came before me. He ranks above me. And so we're wondering, in what sense is that true? Well, literally it says, because he was first with respect to me. That even though I'm older than he is, and even though I came on the scene before he did, that I had disciples before he did, that I was seen as a prophet, I was seen as someone who was, who was leading a movement of repentance before Jesus ever came on, here's what I want you to know. He's first. Okay? The, the whole idea that he ranks above me really is his way of saying he's primary. He is the top. He is first. He is unique. John the Baptist was greatly loved and respected, but he says Jesus Christ, as we'll see later on, he's the master, I'm the servant. Paul put it this way later on in in the Bible, in Colossians 1, he said, and And he, that is Jesus, is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And then Paul gives the so what? That in everything he might be preeminent. The New American Standard says that in everything he might might come to have what? You know that? First place. First place in our lives. So what is John the author doing here? Well, his whole burden is to, and by burden I mean that which, that which drives him, that which he, he wakes up at three in the morning thinking about as he's preparing to write this gospel. Why am I going to write this gospel? He says it's because all these people are starting to think that there's a better way to please God than Jesus. And so he remembers 
what John the Baptist said. And he, he locates Jesus Christ as the primary, the first, the top dog. John's, John's burden is to, is to make sure that Jesus is put in the proper place in our minds. You know, we have, we have a lot of ways of thinking about Jesus in our world today. Uh, a couple of years ago, I talked to you about this thing called moralistic therapeutic deism. Anybody remember that? Oh, you do? <laughs> moralistic therapeutic deism, that, that God is out there somewhere, and he kind of comes to us as Jesus, who's a life coach, and he's here to help us kind of have a moral life, but moral means what may, I think makes me a good person, and so he's, he's distant, he doesn't put any duties on me, no oughts, but he's there when I need him, and he's there to make me the kind of person I want to be. Boy, it's huge, it's everywhere. But here's the thing, Jesus, while he is very helpful at causing us to be the person he wants to be, he wants us to be, he's not our therapist, he's not our life coach, he's not our consultant. Uh, he refuses to stay in the, little, in the little box that moralistic therapeutic deism has put him in and that our society and even some uh, Christians are trying to put him in. Here's the thing, you don't consult with him, okay? You don't manage him. You don't put your expectations on him. I got a, I don't even know if I should say this. I went and saw a movie yesterday called Rampage. I'm sorry, I know I did, sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna use the, the Adam defense. Lord, the, the woman you gave me caused me <laughs> to do this. And because I knew I was preaching this message, the whole time I'm watching this, okay, it's kind of implausible, okay? This stuff falls from the sky, causes a, a normal, wonderful, sign language known, knowing gorilla to become a monster. And they have him caged at various times. And guess what? He breaks out of the cage. And I'm thinking, you know what? That's what some people are trying to do with the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They're trying to put him in this little box, this little cage, and say, when I need you, I'll come find you. I will feed you a little bit with you know, some religious ritual and, and maybe some prayers and every now and then and some, some optics of religiosity. But please understand what John is saying. You know, even though I'm older than he is and I was on the scene first, you gotta understand, he is high and lifted up. You don't manage him, you don't cage him. Rather, we are to fall on our face before him. We are to worship him and adore him, all the while filled with a sense of godly fear because he is almighty God. He knows everything we think. He knows every motive we have. He hears every word that we speak and those that we just say to ourselves, right? He knows all those. That should cause us to tremble. But he's also, for those of us who are in Christ, he's the sympathetic Savior. He's, he's the compassionate shepherd of our souls that will go out and find us and draw us back. He will walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death. Uh, he's the head of the church, and here's the thing. One day he's coming back to settle all the accounts and really to vindicate our obedience to him. And so in verse 15, John is setting the stage, his, his first kind of statement on the stand is about Jesus and his rightful place, but it really is meant to kind of set the measurement against which he sees himself. So you get down to verse 19. 
And we have the second episode that I want to talk about tonight. In the first one, John is witnessing about the primacy of Jesus Christ in his mind. But the consequence of that primacy is his own humility. Look what it says in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, Nope. Well, he said, I am not. Sorry. And you, are you the prophet? And he said, he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Isn't that a great question? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. See, because he was very popular, even in his day, even before he was martyred, there were some who were saying, who is this guy? He's out there. Everybody's going out to him. They're being baptized. He's developing in his own movement. And so the, the religious elite from Jerusalem said, we better find out who this guy is. We better look at his, his resume. We better understand the authority that he seems to have. We need to find out. We've got to hold this guy in check. And so they ask him this penetrating question, who are you? Whenever I read that, I think of, as you do, the Pete Townshend song, right? With the who, some of us, yeah. Back when music had melody, yeah. I'm not going to sing it. I almost did, but I'm not going to. So they they send this uh, delegation of Pharisees and scribes and priests, whoever, and they come and they find him out in the wilderness where he was baptizing, we find in the last verse of our text. And they say, hey, who are you? Now, they're not asking about his lineage. They're not asking, where are you from? A lot of times when I meet somebody here at Grace, uh, they're visitors, they're back in the guest reception, I'll just say, hey, what's your story? And they'll start off by saying, well, this is who we are, where we're from, what brought us to Santa Clarita, you know, this is what we do. We're all kind of used to that. And they didn't come asking that. They really are asking the position, who... Who are you that gives you the right to be out here having uh, baptizing people? You see, first century Palestine was, was hot with messianic expectations. And with the Roman soldiers occupying Jerusalem, there was this, there's this seething sub-story that was going on. When is Messiah going to come and deliver us? When he's going to give our enemies what only God can give them and release us from bondage to Rome. And some, as I mentioned last week, were expecting kind of a a David Messiah, right? The great king who would ride into the city, who would raise up the soldiers, who would lead them in battle like Joshua did and through the power of the Lord, you know, smite their enemies and push them out. Kind of a, a second Canaan experience Right? If you read you know, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Joshua, you see that God led the armies of Israel and they did incredible things. So that's what some people were expecting. Others, especially the, the Qumran community, that's where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And so this sect of, of kind of uh, religious holy men thought that, no, when Messiah comes, he's going to be like a, a great priest, 
the perfect high priest. He's going to come, and through his teaching and through his modeling, he's going to bring the hearts of Israel back to piety, back to sanctification. But if they thought that John the Baptist was a qualified candidate, they were wrong. So he gives them a direct answer, doesn't he, in verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I am not him. When he says he confessed and did not deny, but confessed means that he kept saying, I'm not the guy, even though they didn't believe him. He, we didn't, he didn't vacillate. He didn't say, well, I don't know, maybe I am the guy. Um, I don't know if I should tell you this, but I'm going to anyway. I don't know how many years ago, but there was a show on TV, I think it's over now, called Breaking Bad. So I've heard, <laughs> right? And starting about four years ago, an uncanny number of times when I would be walking around, people, I was going into a restaurant once, and somebody said, are you Hank? I'm not kidding. I don't even know really who Hank is. But I said, um, no, I am not Hank. So two weeks ago, I was flying back from South Carolina, and I flew from Savannah to Charlotte, jumped on a plane, direct flight to LAX. I had an aisle seat, and for some reason, I sat down first, and then my two row mates, the guy in the middle and the guy next to the window, came in, college kids flying out to LA, for an extended spring break, I guess. And uh, they came in and they sat down and I said, hey, how you guys doing? And they started talking to each other. And the guy closest to the window turns to me and says, um, you sure look like Hank. <laughs> and I go, oh, and he goes, are you Hank? <laughs> and just for a split second, the rascal in me wanted to say, if I were Hank, do you think I'd be sitting all the way in the back with you? <laughs> I said, I am not. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. For some reason, John the Baptist was often asked that, apparently. Are you the one? And he didn't play around with it. He never wavered. And so then they asked, well, then who are you? They asked him in verse 21, what then? Are you Elijah? in keeping with Malachi's prophecy in Malachi 4, 5, where God is speaking. He said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. John the Baptist says no. So then they say, Are you the prophet? This comes from Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18, which was uh, Moses saying, I, I'm not going to enter the, the, the promised land. I'm going to stay here. God's going to take my life, but he's going to raise up for you another prophet like me. And so it was often taken to mean that God would send a kind of an end times prophet like Moses who would speak the words of God to them. John the Baptist still says no. Then who are you? And I love this question. Verse 22, they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. We, we are here representing somebody else, and we got to go back and tell them something. They paid for our airfare. What do you say about yourself? Man, isn't that just a penetrating question? Now, what could John have said? He could have at this point said, well, you know, my mom and 
Jesus' mom knew each other. They were close. They were relatives. We grew up together. I kind of taught little Jesus, you know, pretty much everything he knows. <laughs> I'm his advanced man. You got me. What does he say about yourself? What's your story? I just want, all humor aside, I want you to see what he says. He doesn't even say this is my name. His self-identification is all about the relationship he has to the primary one, to God Almighty in the flesh, God the Son incarnate, the agent of all creation, as the SCCS choir sang in the opening song, he is, the word was with God and he was God. And they did it in a, in a great style that forced us, right, to sit up and take notice over and over and over. He is God. The word was God. The word was with God. The word is God. It just hits us. And John, he refuses to in any way encroach upon the glory and the position that Jesus Christ alone holds. Notice what he says, I'm a voice. Wow. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And here's what I'm proclaiming, and here he quotes Isaiah. Isaiah 40, 30, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John the Baptist is very clear on both who he is and what his message is. His identity is a voice. He may not uh, self-identify as any expected end times hero. You know, he could have said he's Elijah. Later, Jesus did. He said, if you care to accept it, he is the Elijah from Malachi. He doesn't do that. He in no way is out to promote himself. His entire ministry, his entire life is a mirror to reflect people's gaze to Jesus. He does admit, however, to being something more than just a traveling preacher. He says, I am a voice, and I am shouting to anybody who will listen that Messiah is coming, and what you had better do is make straight in the highway, in the desert, a path for him. In other words, clean up your lives so that when he comes, he can come directly to you, that you want him to be there. He has a self-identity of humility. He's not self-promoting in his legacy. You know, there's a lot, of, a lot of guys today, a lot of people going around worried about what people are gonna think of them after they're gone, but not near enough worried about what people should think of Jesus Christ while they're here. For example, we'll see in John chapter three, a few weeks from now, that John, sends, John the Baptist sends some of his disciples to Jesus, and they ask, are you the guy? And Jesus says, well, here's what you should tell John. And he gives this Old Testament audit list, this checklist that is found in the Old Testament about when Messiah comes, here's what you'll see. The deaf will hear, the blind will see, the dumb will speak, the lame will, will leap and dance, and the poor, that is, those that the religious elite of John's day didn't have anything to do with, they will have the gospel preached to them. He said, go and tell John what you've seen and heard, and they did, and when they came back and said, you know what, John, John the Baptist, the whole world is going after Jesus. There are people that used to kind of follow you, now they're with him. You know, he built this church down the street, and they're all going there to hear him preach. 
And John says, it's the way it should be. He must increase and I must what? Decrease. This self-esteem of humility is what we see in John. He has a mission to exalt and promote Jesus. And he uses this context from Isaiah 40. The words in Isaiah 40 are all about the fact that God is going to bring back his people from captivity in Babylon back to Canaan. And the voice there is declaring, you know what? Make the roads straight. Make them clear because God is going to come. He's going to bring rescue. You're going to be back home. And so what we see John the Baptist using this message in keeping with the realization that the real deliverance from captivity didn't come when they left Egypt under Moses. It wasn't fulfilled when they left Babylon okay, to come back under Zerubbabel and, and Nehemiah and Ezra. Those were both kind of previews of the real refuge, the real rescue from bondage to sin that was only going to come through Messiah. And so John is now saying, my message is to tell you that what we've all been looking for, all been hoping for, preparing for, is happening. God has sent his deliverer. But this is a deliverer not from human oppression, but from spiritual bondage. And so what is necessary is that you repent of your sins. That's how you prepare the way for God to deliver you. John, the author's desire here, remember his burden, why he wakes up at three o'clock in the morning saying, I gotta write this biography of Jesus. It's because he wants to elevate Jesus to his proper position in the minds of those second and third generation Jewish Christ followers who are now thinking of, of going back to the festivals of Judaism. Thinking, maybe we should go back there. Maybe, maybe that's who we really are. Maybe that's the best way to please God, to go back to the Mosaic Law, to keep that. So John is saying, and he's putting it in the mouth of this man that they, they idolize, John the Baptist. No, Jesus is primary. Take him seriously. If you were to ask John the Baptist, he'd say, take Jesus, God the Son incarnate, very seriously, but never yourself. See your identity as one who's privileged to be a witness. You know, be a voice. You know, that struck me as I was studying it. Because we all have voices too, right? Sometimes we just don't use our voice, whether it's the voice of our lives, the voice of our lips. In 2018, we're really trying to, to think deeply about what it looks like to be a John the Baptist in our own sphere of influence. Now, you don't have to, you know, eat locusts and honey and all that stuff. I'm not saying that. I am saying, though, that you begin to see your sphere of influence as a place where God can actually use you to bring about rescue in someone's life who needs Jesus. And even as I know you and I are alike in that we're reading these articles about how it's becoming harder and harder and it even going to be perhaps really hard to be a Christian in our day, Every once in a while I read articles about how certain places are going to make it illegal to sell Bibles, you know, illegal to, you know, speak about Christ in your workplace. We have a guy in our church who actually lost his job a few years ago, Dave Coppage, because he was giving out uh, videos about God's magnificence in creation. 
So some of those things may be right around the corner, and that's okay. But we're called upon to be a voice, you know, to live a life that is attractive. I, I try to keep reminding you that if, if we really are following Jesus, it ought to make us, what, better people. Not those kind of people nobody wants to be around. Not those who are always critiquing everything else, complaining about this. We should be the best employers. We should be the best employees. We should be the best neighbors. We should love our neighbors, which I think includes using our voices. John said, this is who I am. I'm a voice. I hope that we use our voices. Well, the third episode is found down in verse 24 through 28. Remember, the first one was about hit witness to the primacy of Christ. The second one was witness to his own humble role, his own self-identity. I'm just a voice. But in verses 24 through 28, we find that he witnesses to the privileged role that he has in the mission of Christ. I'm going to tell you, the, the, the more I study, the more I pray, the more I think, the more I come to the conclusion that the most important thing you and I can do in our lives is realize that everything in our life has to point, has to be shaped by the mission of Jesus Christ through the church to the world. Everything. Apparently, the Pharisees were part of this delegation. And so in verse 24, we hear that those who have kind of been asking them these questions have been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him then, why are you baptizing? So if we kind of string it together, are you the Christ? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet that's going to come in the shape and, and power of Moses? No. Well, then, why are you baptizing? What authority do you have what kind of religious leader are you that you would initiate this whole baptismal thing that you got going on, and in other places it tells us that all Judea was going out to hear him? Now, what we have here is a question about his authority, but really that is because baptism that was well known in this day. If you were out in the if you're out in Qumran, which was not too far from Jerusalem, it's where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, and it was a whole community of religious uh, pietists, zealots. They, they copied scripture. That's why we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were very uh, into cleansing. They, they practiced baptism. In fact, in about three weeks, some of us will be there, and we'll go down the steps into what's known as a mikvah. It was a place you could walk down into, and there was a pool of, of water, and every day you would go down and you would cleanse yourself and you'd walk out. It was a ritual that demonstrated the fact that you were subscribing to the rules of the community, which were piety. And it would have been true as well at the same time that in Jerusalem, in the temple, or in the temple area, there were these ritualistic baths that were cleansing. The difference, though, was that those were all self-administered. The idea that you would go and basically baptize yourself. Okay, it was something you were doing. So when they saw John actually baptizing, what they understood was that if someone is, is baptizing someone else, then in essence what they're doing is saying, I have a worldview, I have a, a sect, I have a way of thinking, I have a theology, and if you want to align with me, come and I will baptize you. You see, baptism was always seen as, as an initiatory ritual. It was something that 
you signified externally that you were entering into uh, a relationship as a follower of something or someone. So they, they come to John and they say, what kind of authority do you have that you are calling people to follow you, that you're calling people to come and, and join your sect? And apparently it was so popular that uh, attendance at the temple was <laughs> probably going down. So they come in and they say, who are you? They're asking, if you have no leadership position, why are you baptizing? Now, John's answer in verse 26, he answered them, it contains much more about his message uh, than we really know from this. The synoptics, remember, Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already been written. There's already a whole bunch of stuff about John's preaching. In Matthew 3, this is what Matthew records. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So when they come and they say, what's your authority that you are preaching this and you're asking people who are going to align with what you're saying to let you baptize them? You're initiating them into this new idea, this new way of looking at life. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And he was a big deal. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But, get this. When he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, I, I don't, uh, I'm not endorsing that we talk this way. He looked at him and he said, you brood of vipers. That would have been fun though, wouldn't it? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You know what he's saying? All you religious leaders that are just joining the, joining the gang and you're coming out here for show, who warned you to flee the wrath of come? You need to bear fruits of repentance. It's not just that you come out here and say, hey, baptize me. It's that I need to see in your life that that's a true change from the stale, ritualistic religiosity that you have been practicing. So when they come out and ask John about his authority, it's evident that he's already ticked them off quite a bit. What we learned from Matthew is that many considered their ethnicity as Jews to be you know, all they needed to be accepted and blessed by God. But John the Baptist insists that uh, those who truly want to follow all the Almighty must repent of their sins. And that is going to be demonstrated in good works. And notice what he does in answer to what's your authority. Look what he says. Verse 26. He basically says, I am a servant. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now, for, for us, we don't really understand the depth of significance there. 
He says, I'm baptizing with water, this, this act that was understood of intentional spiritual cleaning, but there's someone coming after me that I'm just preparing the way for, and we'll talk about that more next week. He says, among you stands one you don't even know. And here's how I relate to him. I can't even, I'm not worthy to undo his sandal. Now you've got to understand what's going on. Slavery in the Roman world was very much parallel to what a student of a teacher was to be. So a slave to the master had to do everything that the master asked, except if that slave was a Roman, there's one thing that was beneath them. And that was to take off their master's shoes. That was considered the most humiliating act, and a Roman could never be put through that kind of humiliation. But notice what John is saying about himself. I am here not on my own authority, but I am here because the one that I am pointing to, the one who is primary in my life and in every life, the one who is the Messiah, who's already here, and you don't even know it, I am his slave, and by the way, I am not even worthy to do what was beneath a Roman slave. That's how far I am from having my own authority. John the Baptist insists he isn't even worthy to do a task that was considered as beneath a slave. So what do we learn here? John has a royal master, doesn't he? He's the almighty one. He occupies a position of great importance. So do we. One of our goals, I think, should be as we study the book of John is, is to see Jesus Christ as Isaiah saw him. Because in John 12, we're going to learn. Jesus is going to say when, when Isaiah saw God on his throne, high and lifted up in Isaiah 6, and he said, woe is me. That what he saw, this, this human depiction of God was actually a pre-incarnate appearance of God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And John is very aware of that. He's aware that he serves the king. He never forgets his position as a servant, and yet he realizes that the position he has is a very high one, a very valued one, because God has invited him to partner in this great rescue mission called the gospel. And he's calling people to the mission of Christ. And here's the thing. The more we are involved in the mission of making much of Jesus Christ with our lips and our lives, the more highly we think about Jesus, the more rightly we'll think about ourselves. So important. Remember that John is writing this book so that we might believe. And you say, well, I already believe. Well, we study this book so that it can remind us to deepen our sense of belief. And what we've learned from these three episodes is number one, in John 1.15, we learn the truth about Jesus, that he is magnificent, that he is to be primary, he is to be first place in all things. That he's our Lord and our master and, and we're privileged to be his slaves. That's a privilege. In the second episode, verses 19 through 23, 
we learn that when we understand who Jesus is, it really helps us put ourselves in perspective. That our best identity is understood in relationship to who I am in Christ and how I'm engaged in his mission. And then this third episode in verses 24 through 28, we learn the truth about our role in the mission of Christ, that I'm gonna be most satisfied when the mission of Christ is being accomplished through me in some way, that I'm not on the sidelines, that I have a voice and that in some way I'm using it. I'm gonna be most satisfied in life when I am most engaged in the mission of Christ. When he's glorified through me, I'll be satisfied and still his servant. Father, we, we continue to come to your word that you preserved for us, and uh, it's amazing what's in there. And every week, Lord, every day as we read your text, as we uh, ask the Spirit of God to bring forth its truth and apply it to our lives, we realize well, such a paradox that on one hand we are so humbled by it, and uh, on the other hand we are so privileged that you're gonna use us and that you've called us to yourself and you've equipped us, that you've given us each other, you've given us your word and the spirit and you've, you've given us gifts and talents and opportunities. And Lord, we just pray that you'd help us just to be a voice, to use the relationships with which you've surrounded us for your glory. Because we know that whatever you ask of us, you're faithful to enable in us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen.